Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. What is the connection between pathology and art? And how can we use this connection to raise awareness for our field? My guest today is Dr. Susie Lishman. And in addition to studying pathology, she also studied art history. Today, we'll hear about what she thinks is the connection between the two fields. We'll also talk about her career, her time as president of the Royal College of Pathologists, and the many public outreach projects she is involved with. All right, here's Dr. Susie Lishman. I'm always interested in what what people's uh, inspiration or influences are for becoming a doctor. So what was that like for you? What was your inspiration uh, to go to medical school? Did you have like a family influence or something like that? Yeah, my um, family are very medical. My father and grandfather were family doctors. My aunt was a respiratory physician and my mother and both my grandmothers were nurses. So um, I did consider other careers, uh, thought about law, art history, but I was always fascinated by the human body. And so it wasn't really a very difficult decision for me. It was always really medicine. Okay. Did you have, like, like, did you do any sort of shadowing or anything like that? So I used to spend quite a lot of time with my father. Uh, I would go on home visits with him um, and see patients. And then when I was about 14, I started working in his surgery after school to you know, earn a bit of pocket money. Uh, and my job was filing the notes. So patients who were seen, there'd be baskets full of all the notes for the day. And my job was to put them back in the filing cabinet in the right order. But inevitably, you know, you pick up what's going on around you talk to the receptionists, get to know the doctors and the practice nurses. And so it meant I was, you know, familiar with and comfortable with working in a a general practice family medicine setting. And then my aunt, who was a consultant chest physician, uh, I used to go and spend some time with her in the holidays, particularly as I got closer to applying for medical school. So I could talk about having a bit of experience. Um, and so I'd watch her do bronchoscopies and I'd sit in with her on clinics and do ward rounds and things. So I tried to get as much practical experience as I could. And I was very fortunate. I realized not everybody can do that in having those um those family members who are to enable me to do it. And, you know, I really recognize that. And so I make a point now of of trying to make medicine as accessible as possible to everybody. And I realize I had a, a bit of a head start. Um, so I, I, I do quite a bit of mentoring and uh, arrange placements for medical students who don't have perhaps that opportunity that I had. Oh, that's great. And I think we're going to talk about a, a little of those things a, a little bit later on. But yeah, that's that's great that um, to give people the opportunities like that. I think that's very important. And for a lot of people, once they have some exposure to medicine, whether it's lab medicine or, or another specialty, that's what really hooks them into the field. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All right. Now, I know initially you wanted to specialize in obstetrics. And what was it that you found interesting about that field at, at the time? So as a medical student, I did my rotation on obstetrics and I just loved delivering babies and being part of such a happy time in families' lives. And I really liked being with a mother from the moment she entered the delivery ward, so as she arrived, to seeing them off with the healthy baby at the end of it and loved being part of that whole journey. I got to know many of the families. Uh, I stayed in touch with, with for many years with several of the families and the babies that I helped to deliver. Um, and I, I just loved doing that. 
But I did quite quickly realise that that's not what doctors do. That's not what the obstetrician would spend their day doing. And that you typically would only be attending if something was complicated or if something went wrong. So although I didn't completely rule obstetrics out, I did realise that my view of it as a medical student perhaps didn't quite reflect what it would like be like to do that as a doctor. So I tried to keep an open mind. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly that was that was the first specialty that I really fell in love with. I also found um, while doing that, and I suppose while doing most of my different rotations, I was really interested in, in the science behind it. So when obstetrics, I was interested in the tests that pregnant women had, uh, how rhesus blood groups worked, for example, or what chorionic villus sampling meant, um, mm-hmm. and, and the value of neonatal screening. And so all of those things. And at the time, I didn't realize that was all pathology, but it all sort of came together for me a bit later on um, in my journey. And I realized that what I actually loved was understanding the science and the reason why things happened. Once you started thinking about those things, how was it that you you came to choose uh, pathology? So um, I tried, I made an effort while I was doing my surgical rotation to find out everything there was to know about my patient's treatment. And so I, if, if a patient died and they had a post-mortem examination, I would go along to the pathologist and ask if I could sit in on that or go along and see the findings. Um, if a patient had a cancer removed, I would go and talk to the pathologist and ask if they'd show me the slides under the microscope. I mean, similarly, I would also go and talk to the radiologists and ask them to talk me through some of the more complex scans and things. So I was generally just trying to find out as much as possible about my patients. But it was the pathology that that really grabbed me. And so I think I owe a lot of of that that decision to the inspiring pathologists that that taught me when I was a, a medical student and a, a very junior doctor, uh, and they showed me just how fascinating uh, a role in pathology could be. Yeah, that's interesting that even as a medical student, you were already in, interested in uh, autopsies. Yeah, I think, um, I, don't, I don't know what it is about them. Obviously, when you start medical school, everybody's a bit nervous in the first week when you get to see the cadaver and you start learning about doing anatomy and dissection. And some people get used to it more quickly than others. Uh, and some are more fascinated, I think, by the human body. But I was always certainly very fascinated. I have to say, I did always find it quite strange seeing an autopsy on a patient that I had known while they were alive. Um, and of course, now as a pathologist, I don't really do that because I very rarely know my patients. And in fact, it was more odd to do it on patients that I'd looked after and spoken to and got to know um, than it is now. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I want to... Uh, switched direction just for a little bit here because i think at at the same time what you studied art history and was this at the same time as you were going to medical school yes so i started studying art history in one of my summer holidays at medical school and i spent a long summer two or three months uh, living in florence and i was actually there to study italian i had four hours of italian classes a day and then the language school i was at also offered additional courses such as learning about wine or cooking or art history. And I chose art history and I absolutely loved it. And and it was just amazing to spend the evening in a class learning about Michelangelo, Botticelli, Donatello, and then being able to go and see their their famous works the next morning and explore the neighbourhoods where they lived. 
Were you interested in art prior to that? I mean, you mentioned the three sort of choices that you had and what, what made you choose the art instead of the other two? So my grandparents loved Italy and they went to the same resort on the Amalfi Coast every summer. And I was lucky enough to go with them several times as a child. Um, and I just loved exploring churches. And my grandfather would tell me the stories about the statues and the festivals and the altarpieces. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I think that's what got me hooked initially. And then I found out about the Open University, which is a remote university where you do everything by distance learning uh you know and this was this was 40 years ago and you would watch programs on television and now obviously you can watch them online and they would send you reading materials and you had to teach yourself with with this material that was provided and writing essays and things like that um, and I thought that was something that I could try and fit in and so I did some of that when I was a medical student took a break for finals and while I was training. And then once I qualified in pathology, I took it up again and did several more courses. So uh, it was just great to be able to fit that in around everything else that I was doing. Was it difficult to fit all of that in? I mean, I, I haven't been to medical school, but I, I work with <laughs> work with residents and I know they're very busy. How, how did you find the time for, for both? Um, I certainly had to stop when I was studying for exams. So as I came up to my medical school finals and while I was a trainee, I, I really struggled to fit any in. The nice thing about the Open University is you can pick and choose and you can do a, a short course one year and then a double course the next year. And it's all modular and you just add it up as you go along. And so uh, it meant that I could drop out for a year or two without detriment. So I just did it in the years when things weren't quite so busy. So the years between exams uh, or when I was on a rotation um, that wasn't quite, didn't have so much out of hours commitment. And really it, it sort of became my hobby and the thing that I, I used to do to relax in the evenings and at the weekend. And I'd take the opportunity on holiday to, you know, to visit Italy and go and have a look around churches and museums. Um, and I think because I enjoyed it, it didn't feel like work. So that certainly made it easier to fit in. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And I, I know you've given talks about the relationship between studying art and studying medicine, uh, especially the, the field of pathology. And this is an area that I've been kind of exploring a little bit lately, like what is the link between those two things? So let, let's talk about uh, talk about that a little bit. What What is the link between pathology and art? I don't think I appreciated it early on, but the more I've learned about pathology and art history, the more I've realized there are a lot of parallels between the skills needed to study the subjects and enjoy them. And, and what attracts me to them. So for both of them, you need curiosity, good pattern recognition, very similar, identifying the brush strokes of a particular artist uh, or identifying cells um, that form a tumour, for example, and also attention to detail. But I think for me, the most important thing is context, is, you know, looking at a piece of art, what art history teaches you is about the context of that painting. Why was it painted? Why is it done in the materials that it's made in? Who for? Where was it going to be put? Who was the audience? Who was going to see it? Um, and I think understanding that context to enable you to interpret and enjoy a work of art is quite similar to interpreting a, a tiny biopsy from, from somebody. It's really difficult to do if you haven't got any history. You need to know the age, the sex, the symptoms, what other investigations people have had, and putting it in the overall context. 
I think is, is very similar. Okay. I like that. That's, that, I think that's a good lesson to have a context for, for what you're doing and what, what you're looking at. And like you said, the, the history of the, the painting and the context does correlate with uh, the patient history when you're looking at a, a tissue specimen. That's, that's a really good example. Um, what about kind of the, the artistic aspect? I mean, I know a lot of people kind of make sort of artistic images out of pathology specimens, whether they're, you know, gross specimens or microscopic. I mean, that kind of has a, a similar characteristic too, doesn't it? I think pathology lends itself to artistic ways of displaying and demonstrating things. I mean, histology is so striking the human body is so amazing and beautiful and you know the patterns that you see uh in the folds of the brain or in the cells of the liver um i'll often look at things and think that made a great tie you know or i could make a dress out of that i wish i had that in fabric um <laughs> okay. I, you know they're very visual and very colorful um and and i think you can see the beauty and the art and the design uh in pathology and in the human body and I think that's very similar. I think the other thing is that studying medicine and pathology in particular is an art as well as a science. It's not just cold, hard facts. It's about the way uh, it's about it's still it's always, always about people, about the patients and their stories. And there are just skills that you learn as you go along that are more than just the facts. So it doesn't just come from a textbook. It comes from experience and talking to people and looking after patients. Yeah, I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense. Let's get into a couple of your subspecialties. So the first one is uh, bowel cancer and cancer screening. Now, how did you become interested in this area? So I've always worked in quite small departments, in small hospitals. So I've maintained a broad expertise across many organ systems. So I haven't just specialized in one thing or another. Um, and But I have led teams uh, for organ systems. So I initially had an interest in breast pathology. And as a senior trainee and a more junior consultant, that was uh, what I thought I was going to do. And I led a breast service for about a decade. Um, and then I switched jobs and I moved departments. And there was already an established breast team, uh, but there was a vacancy in colorectal pathology. And so I transferred to that. So um, I've been pathology lead for colorectal cancer now for about 15 years. Um, and then that in itself led me into bowel cancer screening. When a program was introduced in the UK about 10 years ago as bowel cancer pathology lead, I got involved in that both locally and nationally in setting up that service, training pathologists in how to interpret uh, specimens that were removed. And um and I'm leading my hospital for that and have been doing that for, for many years now. And so it's all sort of grown organically as I've gone along, as opportunities have come up. I've added them onto all the other things that I do. Mm. That's another important point too, when those opportunities come up to take advantage of them and, you know, at least explore them if, you know, if they don't work out fine. But if they do, then you've learned something new and you've, you've grown a little bit professionally. So I think that's important to do. It is. And I think even if it doesn't work out, you still learn something new. Um, so uh, yeah. it may be that you've learned what, how not to do it or you there are some things about it that you like, but not others. And so I'm a great believer in, in grabbing opportunities as they come along and you never know where they might lead. I've done so many different things over the years uh, that I wouldn't have thought of 
doing if 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 I hadn't uh, volunteered uh, for things. Sure. Now I want to talk about an organization called Bowel Cancer UK because you're the chair of the scientific advisory board for this organization. Yes. So, so, all right. So, how did this position come about for you? So, uh, I've worked with Bowel Cancer UK several times over the years through my role largely at the Royal College of Pathologists, and they've been in touch for uh, to ask for the college support for various campaigns, for example, to ensure that every bowel cancer is tested for Lynch syndrome. Uh, and so through my college role, I worked with the charity and helped write letters and publish papers and things and to support them um, in, in campaigning uh, to make that mandatory across the country. And then when I stepped down as president of the college in 2017, Bowel Cancer UK approached me and asked if I would become chair of their scientific advisory board. So what Bowel Cancer UK do, they're a charity and they provide information and support for people with bowel cancer and their families. They campaign for early diagnosis and access to the best treatment and care. They also educate the public and professionals about the disease. And importantly, they fund research into bowel cancer with a particular focus on early diagnosis and treatment. And so that's where the scientific advisory board comes in. We review all the applications for grants and we award funding to those that best meet the aims of the charity. So I have a fantastic committee of experts who work in various disciplines related to bowel cancer. And we get together once a year, we review all of the applications and then help to fund the research into bowel cancer diagnosis. Okay, that sounds like some very important work. Do you feel that as a pathologist, that it's important to get involved in things like this to kind of, you know, not only to have a pathologist involved, but you have kind of a public facing position for a pathologist just to give more uh, recognition or exposure to the field? I think it's really important for pathology to be represented on all of these things. I mean, there's very little research that doesn't rely on pathology at some point um, yeah. to, you know, to make the diagnosis. And I think trying to do that with just relying on pathology reports without having a pathologist is a big mistake. So I do think it's vital for pathologists to get involved in this sort of thing. I agree. I think pathologists need to keep their profile up. You know, we don't typically see patients. We're not, we're a specialty that many medical students don't rotate through. And so I think it's really important that we take every opportunity that there is to raise the profile of the specialty and to demonstrate how vital it is to all aspects of healthcare. Um, so I'm really keen that people do that. All right, then let's get into your uh, medical examiner role. Because uh, as we said earlier, you I mean, you became uh, interested in autopsies very early on. Did that grow into you wanting to become a medical examiner? Now, this is where our common language that divides us comes in, because a medical examiner in the UK, or specifically in England and Wales, because it doesn't apply to Scotland, uh, a medical examiner in the UK is a completely different role to that in the United States. Right. So we would call our medical examiners, what, what, you, what in the States would be a medical examiner, would be our forensic pathologist. And that's not what I do. So medical examiners, and it's slightly unfortunate that they have the same name because it is, I appreciate it's confusing. But in, the, in, in England and Wales, um, 
medical examiners are doctors from any specialty. So they could be surgeons, pediatricians, anaesthetists, anything. And their role is to help ensure that death certificates are accurate. So there's the correct cause of death on the certificate, that cases are referred to the coroner through investigation appropriately. So making sure that we don't just send lots of cases off for investigation that don't need it, but also making sure that cases that do need further medico-legal um, review do get referred to the coroner. But also to make sure that families understand what's happened to their loved one, that we explain the cause of death to them, and they have an opportunity to ask any questions that they might have. And that's probably the most important part of the medical examiner role is that interaction with families because otherwise it's quite possible for somebody to die at home in bed or even to die in hospital and the family never to have a conversation with a doctor about what happened and so medical examiners sort of bridge that gap. Um, we also look out for any areas of practice that could be improved and we feed those back to the hospital or the family doctor to help them to provide better care for future patients. So there's a learning uh, aspect to it, both supporting current bereaved families, but also hoping to make things better in the future. Okay, I see. So then what is the training to become a medical examiner? Like you said, you don't necessarily have to be a pathologist. So what additional training uh, do you get? Yeah, so... Um, so my role in medical examiners has, has been for probably eight or nine years, uh, largely through the Royal College of Pathologists, which has been campaigning for their introduction. And I've been closely involved in all aspects of implementation, really. But the training one is probably the most important. So I'm national lead for medical examiner training. And so I've been involved with a, a team of colleagues in developing e-learning. So we have online learning modules and we have a core of 26 e-learning modules that cover the core subjects like how to write a death certificate, when to refer to the coroner um, and so on. And then we've done another 35 additional modules which people can pick and choose the ones that are relevant to their practice, which might be about meeting the needs of a faith community in their area, for example, or organ transplantation and what impact that has. Uh, so we've done all the online uh, materials. And then medical examiners have to attend a one-day training programme, which was initially face-to-face. -face. We used to hold it in the college. We'd have small groups of eight or nine people around a table, and a lot of the training is very scenario-based. So we'd give the delegates a scenario um, about somebody who's died and the circumstances, and we'd throw in a few sort of difficult uh, issues for them to deal with and give them time with an experienced facilitator to think about how they would approach that case. And then we have a plenary session where we feed that all back with a few short presentations from key people like a coroner, a medical examiner, a medical examiner officer who supports the, the medical examiner service. Um, and then at the end of that, the um, delegates get their certificate to complete of completion to say that they've, they've completed the initial medical examiner training. And then they're expected to participate in ongoing clinical professional development, attend the annual medical examiner conference, for example, uh, and various other training days 
and meetings that we develop along the way. And of course, over the last 18 months or so, we've moved that in-person day online. And amazingly, it works almost as well. Uh, and people don't all have to travel long distances to get to it. And we, with the breakout room facilities that you can have online, we're able to recreate those small informal group discussions and then everybody comes back into the main meeting to discuss them. So it's been remarkably successful and we've developed a very similar program for the medical examiner officers who are not doctors um, and come from a range of different backgrounds such as nurses, radiographers, bereavement staff, for example, and they now have their own similar training program that parallels that of medical examiners. I read that you're an advocate for a national medical examiner system. Now, is this training program a, a part of that? Yes, that's right. So this is all part of a national medical examiner system. And we now have a national medical examiner, Dr. Alan Fletcher, who oversees uh, this implementation. And he's supported by a team of seven regional medical examiners in England and one in Wales. And then they're in contact with lead medical examiners in each hospital. And so we now have a network of experienced medical examiners moving this forward. About 80 to 85 percent of all hospital deaths are currently reviewed by a medical examiner. And obviously we're aiming towards 100 percent. And over the next few months, we'll be extending the service to cover deaths that take place outside hospital. So deaths in the community, in nursing homes, in people's homes, um, wherever they may take place. And we are working very closely with the Department of Health, the Ministry of Justice, you know, with government to put this into law. So the legislation is currently going through Parliament at the moment, and we hope within the next year that it will become statutory. So it will become a legal requirement for every death in England and Wales to be reviewed by a medical examiner so that all our deaths certificates we know are accurate, that the right cases go to the coroner and that families get that support and help and information. And then, of course, we get any learning. So we're, we're getting there. But yes, yeah, certainly the training pay, plays a large part in that. Mm-hmm. That, that sounds like a very um, sort of a monumental project to, to push that through Parliament and make it into law. But uh, it, it sounds like great progress is being made. That's, that's, that's awesome. It has been, it's been a long slog, I have to say. It's taken, you know, the best part of a decade to get to this point. Um, But I think by introducing the system before it became law, it's actually enabled us to make changes and do a lot of communication about it. So most, I think almost every hospital now in England and Wales has got a system, even though it's not yet a legal requirement. Um, So when it does become a legal requirement, they'll be there ready to go. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Susie Lishman. We'll be right back. LabVine is building a team to help lab medicine professionals live their best lives. Now, these are commission-based sales positions, and the only requirement is that you're passionate about helping people, especially laboratorians. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can email for more information or just watch the LabVine social media pages. Also this month on LabVine, there are some great resources for managing laboratory finances. These topics include financial management, financial statements, budgets, controlling costs, and making financial decisions. And you can find these at LabVine by following the link in the show notes. 
Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Susie Lishman on the People of Pathology podcast. In some of the talks that I've, I've, I've watched videos of you talking about being a medical examiner, and you always mentioned the, the APT, the anatomical pathology technologist, and you have very, you have a lot of appreciation for them. Are they a part of, like, are you involved in their training as well? My links with anatomical pathology technologists, APTs, are largely through my role as a histopathologist who performs autopsies. So that's where uh, most of my links with APTs are. And you're quite right. I have a great respect for the work that they do, the professionalism that they bring, and the skills that they have um, in working with the pathologists on postmortem examinations, reconstructing the bodies, but really importantly, the support that they give to bereaved families. So I don't have a formal role nationally in terms of training uh, APTs. I do some locally. And uh, in fact, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks time um, on part of their educational uh, program. So uh, I have informal links with the Association of Anatomical Pathology Technologists, and I'm always very pleased to work with them um, and give the odd talk now and then when they ask me to do that. Yeah, I I interviewed an uh, APT a, a while back on this podcast, and they have. You're right; they have a very important role, and I, I don't think we have something that's quite exactly the same. We have something similar here in the U.S., but it's not it's not the same as what they do. So uh, that that was interesting to learn about that. Let's talk about your interest in medical history now, because this seems like it's kind of a combination of everything you you enjoy. I mean, you've got the art history, so the history part, and then the medicine part kind of combined together. But I'm curious why, for you, why is it important to study medical history? So I actually started, I, I, as I mentioned, I studied history of art with the Open University at the same time as training to work as a doctor. And after I'd done several of the art history courses, they introduced a new course on the history of medicine. So I took that in its first year um, and actually found it much easier than my other courses because the content was so familiar. So as you say, it's a mixture of medicine and history, which I've always loved. So I, I share my interest in the history of medicine through a lot of the events that I hold for the public. And I've appeared on several television documentaries talking about things like arsenic poisoning, bubonic plague, wartime murders. Um, and I think it is important to study medical history. I mean, firstly, it's just fascinating. And uh, people are always very interested about, uh, you know, the health of people in the past and what's happened to them and what weird and wonderful treatments there were. But also, I think we can learn a lot. And, you know, lots of comparisons made between the current pandemic and previous ones, uh, you know, sure. and what happened in, in the Black Death or in the Ebola outbreaks. Um, and I think we can learn an awful lot in medicine by looking back and seeing how things have been managed and what the outcomes have been in the past. Um, but for me, I do it mostly because I just find it so fascinating. Oh, I agree I, with with all of those points, really. I mean, it is fascinating. And also, yeah, it's interesting to see how people reacted to, say, you know, the Black Death 
and what's happening now. And some of those similarities are uh, disturbing, I, I think. Yes, I, I've given quite a few talks about the bubonic plague and the Black Death and over the years, and I always finish it up with, and this is not likely to have been the last big pandemic, and you never know what's coming. And people always sort of laugh nervously and think I'm joking. And of course, I, I've stopped saying that now. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever, you don't say, well, I told you so? <laughs> no, I do try not to say that in general. <laughs> okay. Now, you, you mentioned earlier about the Royal College of Pathologists, and you were president from 2014 to 2017. That's right. Yeah. All right. So let, can we kind of go through what was the origin of this? Like, how did you get involved with the college? So I volunteered for a couple of college committees shortly after I'd completed my final specialist exams. So when I was working independently as a consultant pathologist, but it was actually a, a chance comment from a, a former tutor of mine, uh, the late Professor Paola Domizio, that really started my involvement. I was having coffee with her, having a catch up. And um, the college is led by a team of seven officers, the assistant registrar, the registrar, the treasurer, three vice presidents and a president. And my friend Paula was the registrar at the time. And she just happened to mention over coffee that the assistant registrar, which is sort of the most junior of those officer roles, was about to be advertised. And she thought I'd be really good at it. And I didn't really even know that it existed. But following her advice, I looked into it thought it looked like an interesting challenge, and I decided to apply. And so I was elected to that role in 2002. And that really was the start of my, my main college career. And I was subsequently elected to the role of registrar when Paola stepped down, and then vice president, and then president. So I did four consecutive three-year terms as officers, culminating in, in that role as president, as he said, from 2014 to 17. Uh, and just spent a wonderful 12 years working with a fantastic team of officers and college staff. And of course, getting to meet members around the country and around the world um, and working to try to make pathology better for them working in the specialty, but also for our patients. Do you think it's important for, you know, pathologists and other, I guess, other lab professionals, but for people to get involved in their professional organizations like you did? I do. Not surprisingly, because it's what I did. I mean, I, I appreciate it's not for everybody. And there'll be times in your career when you're just too busy to be able to take that extra time. Um, sure. But I've got an awful lot out of it. It has been interesting, not interesting, not only in itself, because it, you know, it's a fascinating role to do, but it's also helped me in my day-to-day working as, as a, a jobbing pathologist in a hospital. It's helped me understand a lot more... Um, about, for example, where where standards and cancer data sets and things come from, the evidence that's behind them. You know, I know the authors of most of them. Um, and all of that helps me day to day to understand how to better improve my practice and deliver the best care. So I definitely encourage people to get involved in professional organisations. And they all have a really wide range of opportunities, you know, from something really small, like a one-off uh, working group where you just have a single meeting to discuss a topic uh, and then maybe a, a document or something will come out of it all the way through to 
you know, something much more substantial uh, that actually takes you away from the pathology job. But it's that, that and everything in between. So there's lots of things people can do. And I calculated that if I added up all the different roles that there were when I was working at the college, that about one third of all the college members in the country had a college role of some sort, whether it was examiner, regional representative, student rep, member of the specialty committees, uh, any of those things. There's so many different things people can do. And I do think it enhances one's role as a pathologist to get involved. And of course, there's an altruistic element to it in that you know, the, the college is run entirely by volunteers um, who do it largely in their own time. And uh, it would be very difficult. You know, you couldn't afford to employ people to do that sort of work. And so if we want the profession to be supported, um, to have people setting standards and examining and moving the profession forward, then we as members need to to do that, really. Oh, you were in charge of quite a few public engagement initiatives, which I, I think you started doing that even before you were president of, of the college. That's right. From these initiatives that you were involved with, did they help to increase the awareness of pathology? Like, did you notice that as, as these things were happening? I've always been interested in sort of demystifying medicine and pathology for the public and uh, have given talks to schools and interested audiences for many years. Um, but my involvement in the college gave me the opportunity to expand this. And in 2009, I introduced the first National Pathology Week. I thought if every pathologist who was already giving a talk, say, for their children's school or for a local group, did so in the same week, it would raise the profile of the specialty. So our initial target was 40 events around the UK, but in the end, there were 320. Um, oh, wow. and, since, and since then, you know, we've had five, six, seven hundred uh, every year, and there have been thousands of events held. And I also introduced International Pathology Day in 2014. So events are now held worldwide, as well as those that are already organized in each country. And I definitely think that these events help increase awareness of pathology. But I do admit there's still quite a long way to go. But I know that there are many medical students who are inspired to study pathology after attending an event. People come up to me and say, you know, I'd never considered pathology as a career, but having learned more about it, I will definitely, uh, you know, be looking into it. Or they'll come and say, I'd always wondered what it was like. And now, you know, that's helped me make my mind up that that's what I'm going to do. And so there are thousands of doctors out there also now who understand more about the specialty, even if they haven't gone into pathology themselves. They've got a much better understanding of what pathologists do. And so perhaps they will think twice before ticking that extra box on the blood test list because they'll think about, do I really need this and what would I do with the result? Um, they won't phone the lab 20 minutes after a specimen arrives and ask where the result is because they understand now that it takes time to process a specimen. So I hope that getting that information out to a wide audience, which inc includes healthcare professionals, means that pathology services will be understood better. And of course, all of this can only be better for patients if their doctors understand how to get the best out of, of pathology. And better understanding by the public is so important. I often talk about one of the main benefits of public engagement being that of increasing health literacy. So having the public just 
being able to have those critical skills to evaluate claims that they may see in the newspapers or in social media, being able to understand how the body works and how lifestyle choices can affect our health, I think is really important. Pre-pandemic, I, I used to give the example of it helping people make an informed decision about you know, whether to have their children vaccinated or whether to have a healthy diet or do lots of exercise. But now I think it's clear that the more everybody on the planet understands about science uh, and how it works, you know, everybody needs to know that. And um, we all have decisions to, to make about, you know, vaccinations, wearing masks, things like that, and being able to critically evaluate the information that we see, um, knowing that a lot of the information that you see on social media needs to be taken with a pinch of salt. I know there are lots of memes going around um, about, you know, why would you believe somebody's cousin writing on social media instead of the doctors and scientists who, who have been studying these things mm -hmm. for years. So there's clearly a long way to go. But I think pathologists can play a, an important role in helping people understand evidence and how to apply that to their lives. Um, so I don't think it will ever end. I don't think this is a job that we'll do and then we'll stop and it'll be done. Um, but I do think it's an important part of pathologists' role to try to make sure that the rest of the world, whether that's patients, children, uh, other healthcare professionals, that they understand about the role of pathology uh, and science. Yeah, absolutely agree. I, I like what you said about demystifying medicine and demystifying science. And I think one of the things that you do in that area is your your living autopsy presentation, which I there's a video on YouTube. I'm going to link that in the show notes for this because I think people need to watch that. But how did you come up with the idea for that? So I developed that in the first National Pathology uh, Week in 2009. And Part of the thing we were trying to do was to get people away from thinking that pathology is all about autopsies. But in fact, when I spoke to people, which I tried to do to get an idea of what the public or schools or whoever might be interested in, the forensic or the autopsy side of things was the first thing that everybody said. And so I made sure that we had plenty of other events about other pathology specialties. Um, and But I did do that one. And I tried to think about how I could bring the autopsy to people in a respectful and appropriate way. Um, I didn't want it to be sensational uh, or disrespectful at all. And so obviously I, I couldn't have a real dead body. I didn't even want to have photographs uh, of real dead bodies. And so what I did was get a live model, the boyfriend of a mate, to be honest, <laughs> to come along and lie down on a couch and you know, pretend to be the body. And probably the key thing that I take along are my instruments. In fact, I gave a talk last night on the tools of the trade. And I took along my bag of autopsy instruments. And I just talked about what each one was for and the sorts of things that we use them for. And so in the living autopsy, I have the instruments. Um, I have a felt tip pen and I draw on my model. And so I will show, demonstrate where the incisions are, I will draw the location of the organs and then I will hold up the instruments. And pre-pandemic, I used to pass the instruments around the audience so they could have a look and see what rib shears or a tea chisel uh, or a label and all that. Just have a feel and have a look and see what they're like. Of course, I don't mm -hmm. pass things around at the moment, but um, people can have a look. And then I just talk through the process of an autopsy and I just say, right, 
the first thing I do is paperwork. You know, everything starts with the paperwork, making sure you've got the right person, that you've got the right consent, that you've got the background history. Uh, and then I talk about external examination, identifying the patient, looking for clues, uh, and then talk through the process of the autopsy, how we access the organs, and then through the different organs and the common diseases that we might see. And then importantly, how we put it all back together, uh, how we only retain material with consent and only tiny amounts of that how everything goes back into the body, and then how the anatomical pathology technologists are so skilled at reconstructing bodies um, so that family members can see them afterwards if they wish, after, uh, you know, after they've had the post-mortem and talk all the way through uh, that. And um, it just seems to have grabbed people's imagination. People really enjoy it. A lot of the comments I get about how people thought that it would be gory and, you know, not a, a very pleasant thing to do. And and they understood from my presentation that it's respectful, that we recognise that the deceased is somebody's loved one. We treat them with respect. The procedure is like an operation, just one that somebody doesn't wake up from. And they understand more about what we can learn from the body and why it's so important. And despite all the fantastic scans and tests that people might have while they're alive, um, being able to do an autopsy is really gold standard uh, of finding out what's happened to somebody. And I also talk about the future, about the possibility of imaging postmortems, uh, you know, doing CTs and how I, I think that we'll be doing far fewer uh, conventional postmortems uh, in the future. But we're not quite there yet. Right. And speaking of the, the future, um, I mean, everybody talks about digital pathology as the future of pathology. And I know your hospital utilizes digital pathology. So yes. let's let's yeah. talk about that. What was the I mean, are you completely digital there? All of our histology is scanned. Um, so our standard slides and then our special tests our immunohistochemistry and everything, they are, they are all scanned and we can access those digitally. We still have access to the glass slides if we want them. And for some, some cases, it's nice to be able to do that. The only thing that is not scanned for us is our cytology. So our cytology preparations, we still look at on glass. And the, the only other group of, of slides, the bowel cancer screening program, which involves reviewing polyps from people who've had a screening, that's not yet approved to be done digitally. So we have to do those on glass. But I would say probably at least 95% of the work that I do, I now do digitally. I'd like to know about the kind of the transition to that. Like, was it difficult to adapt to the, the digital image as opposed to the glass slide? So I was lucky to have a head of department who was very keen to introduce digital pathology and he spotted an opportunity to obtain funding to introduce it because I think the real barrier is, is the cost. There's quite a lot of initial outlay for the scanners and the monitors. And, um, and then there's ongoing costs for maintaining those. But having installed the scanners, the software, the high resolution monitors, we spent several months validating the processes to make sure our diagnoses were as accurate as those on glass slides. So we essentially did both. So we had to double read things and see if there was anything that we were missing um, on the digital slides. And I thought after 
you know, 25, 26 years as a pathologist that I was too old and too set in my ways and nothing was ever going to replace glass. And I was amazed to find after a few weeks that I would turn to digital first. And it just really sort of came naturally. The benefits of using digital sold themselves. I didn't really have to to think about it. I do still have a microscope in my office uh, and one at home. But for routine diagnostic work, I prefer digital, Uh, particularly for things like measuring. It makes measuring quicker and more accurate. It's particularly good for requesting second opinions from colleagues. It's so much easier. I can work at home and then I can send an email to a colleague who's either working at their home or working in the hospital and say, please, could you have a look at this case for me? It looks a bit difficult. What's your opinion? And they'll email me back the opinion within an hour, whereas previously I'd have had to physically take the slides to them or you know, wait until the next morning until I saw them. Um, and similarly for sending things for opinions further afield. We can now essentially send slides around the world and get instant opinions. It also makes reviewing cases for our multidisciplinary team meetings, our tumour boards, uh, much easier because you don't have to physically get all the slides out. Um, and they we put them into a folder on the digital system. And I can now go in at any any day of the week and review those slides so that I'm ready. So when I go to my meeting where we discuss all the colon cancer cases for the week, for example, the slides are all there and I've had an opportunity to look at them properly rather than suddenly being handed a massive pile an hour before the meeting starts. And, I, and to be honest, I think we've probably only just scratched the surface in terms of the potential benefits. We've, we're, what we're doing at the moment, we're really just using digital in the same way that we use glass. But I know that there's a lot more that we'll be able to do with digital. So, for example, with the development of artificial intelligence and machine learning, we're expecting the computer to be able to do some of the screening for us, perhaps spotting small foci of cancer in a prostate biopsy. And with faster broadband, um, I hope to be able to work from anywhere one day. At the moment, it's really the, the bandwidth um, that limits what we can do. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've seen some presentations about digital pathology and kind of where the future of that is going. And like you mentioned, the AI, you know, for counting and measuring things. Yeah, that that that's really exciting. I mean, I think it's an exciting time to be in pathology because of all these new things that are, are on the you know, not too distant horizon. I I agree. I think, you know, with digital, with the advances in molecular pathology, I think it is a particularly exciting time to be in, in, in the specialty. And it's interesting when I was appointed to my first pathology job um, in 1993, um, it was when immunohistochemistry was, you know, just being adopted routinely. And I was asked, why are you bothering applying for this job? Because immunohistochemistry will mean that we don't need pathologists anymore. Um, and I said then what I say now about, you know, people say, is it a threat? You know, you can have machines taking your jobs away from you. Uh, and I'm not remotely worried. Uh, I think all of these advances are just beneficial. They're bonuses. They help us to make our diagnosis. And nothing is ever going to replace the human eye, the human brain and a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. There's the, I, I, I still have not figured out where I read this, but I, I say this all the time that people, when it's AI, we, we shouldn't be talking about artificial intelligence. It's really augmented intelligence because you still need a person to, to do the work and they have the computer to help them. It's in, it's yeah. uh, an assist. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. 
in an interview I watched with you, you said the best way to find out if you're interested in becoming a pathologist is to spend some time with pathologists, which I like. And that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree. We've talked about a lot of ways that you advocate for the field. And this seems to be a major focus for you. If we were talking to a group of pathologists and, and kind of suggesting additional ways that they could advocate for our field, what, what would you say? I say start with small steps. Don't feel that you have to go straight in at the deep end and do something on a massive scale. So maybe give a talk at your children's school. You know, most schools will have careers days and talks and things like that. Or perhaps invite a medical student to come and have a look at their patient's slide. Or get a team of colleagues at work together and hold an open day. You could do that for interested members of staff in the hospital. Uh, get them to come and have a look around, talk them through what happened, the journey of a specimen as it arrives. It doesn't have to be anything too ambitious. But also, I'd say, have a look out for uh, national and international initiatives like National Pathology Day, International Pathology Week, or whatever your national awareness raising week is. Um, in the UK, there are College of Pathologists offers science, communi science communication training now for its members giving them the skills and the confidence and ideas that they need to develop and deliver their own events. So once people have done a few events, we encourage them to get some formal training. But you don't really need um, a lot of training. But there's a huge appetite out there for more information about pathology. One of my living autopsies was advertised in a local paper um, in, in Newcastle um, saying and tickets will go on sale at 9am on Thursday. Uh, and But by 9.01, all the tickets are gone. They just sold straight out and I had to put on two wow. more events. People are fascinated by this. So don't ever underestimate how interested the public are about our job. So I would just say, get out there and you never know where it might lead. I like it. That's great. That's great advice. Uh, Dr. Lishman, this has been really interesting. I, I really appreciate your time and uh, kind of looking back over your career and, and the amazing things you've, you've accomplished. So Dr. Susie Lishman, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Great big thanks to Dr. Susie Lishman. You know, since we talked about anatomical pathology technologists a little bit, here's a clip of my conversation with APT Gemma Norburn. The APTs have a professional organization called the AAPT. Yeah. All right. I'd like to learn more about this organization. So, and I know you're you're a bit involved with it as well. Can you can you tell me about it? What it, what is it and what does it do? Yeah, sure. So the AAPT is the um, Association of Anatomical Pathology Technology. Um, they started in uh, 2003 and they're the recognised professional body for APCs, um, not just in the UK, but they also accept people to apply from overseas as well. Okay. And they're heavily involved with other uh, professional bodies in this country, such as the um, Institute of Biomedical Science and the Royal College of Pathologists. And they work to kind of improve the, the career as a whole and support the members. Um, a large part of what they're actually working towards at the moment is to get to a point where there's statutory regulation um, and registration for APTs. So the idea is that at the moment it's, it's on a volunteer uh, registration basis. So we can volunteer to register with different bodies, but actually what we want to get to a point to is where we want it to be compulsory for, and then be taken more seriously. You can hear more from Gemma Norburn in episode 30. I'm really glad I got the opportunity to talk with Dr. Lishman about the connection between art and pathology. As you know, this is something I've been 
sort of casually exploring for a little while. And it was interesting to get her point of view on that. And I think the most important part of that was what she said about having context, both for art and for pathology, you know, why the piece of art was made and what it was intended to show. It's the same thing as having a accurate patient history for a specimen. Also, Dr. Lishman gave a lot of great ideas for public outreach to promote the pathology and laboratory fields. So hopefully you found something there that you could use uh, in your own institution. And she did mention International Pathology Day, which, by the way, was just this past Wednesday, November 10th. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, and you'll definitely want to check out the video of the living autopsy. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.